Well, good morning. God bless you. We're so glad that you are here today on this blustery uh, Sunday morning, Lord's Day morning. Thank you, Tyler, for those good words from heaven. And thank you, musicians and worship leaders, for leading us into the presence of the Lord. It's so wonderful to worship uh, together as the body of Christ. Well, it's nearly spring. I think that's March the 20th, officially 2019. And as you've been reminded several times already, it is uh, the time of year that we call Lent. And you've heard people say, uh, I'm sure, uh, in this uh, last uh, week or so especially, that they're giving up something for Lent. Uh, how about something like snow and rain? How about giving that up for Lent? Anybody in favor? I am in favor of that. Just wishful thinking. But why, why do people give up something for Lent? Have you thought about that? Why do people give up something for Lent? Well, Lent is really about self-examination and change. Now, let me say that one more time because that went right past most of us. Lent is really about self-examination and change. The 40 days leading up to Easter that we're in now, not counting Sundays, the 40 days of Easter or leading up to Easter of Lent which happens during the springtime. Spring is a time of change. We've just come out of winter. We have spring. Hopefully uh, the seasons are are not only changing, but the earth is changing and preparing for all the wonderful crops and flowers and beautiful things of nature and all of that. Just a time for change. And it's a special time for us as spiritual folks to draw closer to God in spiritual examination. That's why we talk about Lent. That's why we've brought it to you. Some of you have read some of the... uh, the, on the internet, some of our blogs uh, and uh, our our staff and some of our volunteers are writing things about self-examination and change. So the whole idea behind Lent is that, here it is, in examining ourselves before the Lord, and of course we're to do this when we come to the Lord's table, each time we partake of the, the bread and the cup, Uh, We are being reminded to look within with God's eyes to see what God sees. But during Lent, we are examining ourselves before the Lord as he may reveal some area in our lives that he wants us uh, to change. And then, with the Lord's help, uh, we work on whatever he, he speaks to us about. And in some cases, things that we need to add. You know, Lent is not just about, catch this. Lent is not just about giving something up, but Lent Lent can also, uh, considering change, be about something we are adding in. For example, it may be that the Lord is, is asking you for the first time in a long time, or if ever, to read through the whole Bible, His book, so that when you stand before Him one day, and He says, so, did you read my book, the letter I gave you? And you say, well, I read portions of it and the stuff the pastor and the Sunday school teacher talked about, but I can't say I I actually read the whole thing. It may be God is saying, change that. Read the whole book. Uh, Do it in conjunction with the corporate body. Add that in to your lifestyle. Make room for the reading, regular reading of God's word. For some, uh, you're not going to get a report of your giving for last year because you didn't give anything. You came, you pulled up to the table, 
You worshipped, you sang, you participated, you volunteered, you may have done different things, but there's no record of your giving into the Lord's storehouse. And so God may be speaking to you, it's time for some change, to make room for change in your budget. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's why you ask God about those things. You ask Him to begin to help you. All of us who are giving in a regular way had to start somewhere. Amen? We all started somewhere. And so God may be asking you to add that in. God may be asking you to add something in like your prayer life to improve your prayer life. So Lent and self-examination before the Lord is not just about giving something up, but it may be about adding something to our lives. What might he be saying to you this morning or this week or during this period of time? And then with his help, we begin to work on that. It's really, Lent is really a, a spiritual exercise. Lent is truly a spiritual exercise when we stop and think about it. And the idea is this. Perhaps in giving something up for a period of time, it reminds us that we need to be working on change in order to be a better disciple. Make disciples. Be a disciple. Change. And sometimes change is not easy. Sometimes change, we have to work at change. We have to work at change. Um, Last night, Last night, uh, we tried to get out to um, catch Mira in the production of The Music Man. And uh, I decided what I was going to wear. And so I had black shoes, black socks, I had a black belt. I had a a black uh, uh, coat that I wore and something that went, a shirt that went along with black. And uh, as we got there to the, in front of the auditorium at, at the school, my wife looked at me. She said, Tim, did you know your pants are blue? Now, it isn't that blue and black can't work. I mean, I understand that. But I, I had this idea that it was going to be kind of a black theme, okay? And I, and I looked down and I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. But, you know, when I went into the closet and I, and I, you know, I had three pair of pants that are kind of in that range there. I kind of know where I put them. And, and I, I pulled this pair of pants out and I held it up to something that I knew exactly was black. I held it up. I mean, I went that far to check it out. And it was black, I thought, until she told me it was blue. And so uh, this morning, <laughs> okay, I thought, okay, black uh, shoes, and I got black socks on. They're black. They're actually black. And gray jacket and this black belt, and it's all going to work with the black theme. And I went to the closet and I, and I knew where I put those blue pants. And I thought, I'm not putting those on. I know not to put those on. So I got another pair, held them up, and I said, now those are black. And I put them on, and I went to the car, that, and I backed out of the, got ready to back out of the driveway. And I looked down, and don't you know, in the sunlight, they were blue. So I go charging back in the house and I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of frustrated. I'm thinking, I can't believe this is the second time I've done this. I'm going to have to change these pants. Well, the blue works okay with the black. I know, but I wanted it to be black. I, you know, the Lord wants me to do certain things a certain, so I'm going to, so I'm going to, so I took them off and there was only one pair left and they really were, they're black, right? Amen. They're black. Okay. But sometimes it, you know, we need to change and sometimes we have to work at it a little bit. 
So, so don't be afraid when God, God reveals some things to us during this. It's really a spiritual exercise for, well, for, forever, really. Uh, be willing to be pliable. This week, uh, you may have noticed in the news, a little boy had to wipe off the uh, Ash Wednesday cross that he had on his forehead because when he got to school, I don't know, he must have been about a third or fourth grader, maybe fifth grade, I'm not sure, he was a young boy. And uh, apparently his teacher did not understand much about uh, Lent, about Ash Wednesday. And so she told him in no uncertain terms that that was inappropriate at school and made him wipe it off. And so it turns out that that teacher uh, got sent home, not the little boy, the teacher got sent home for not being so kind to uh, to the little boy. In fact, uh, being a bit insensitive and made him cry in front of his classmates, which is a not a good thing, a sad thing. And uh, in the process, the, uh, the the news person that was interviewing him and his mother uh, asked him, he said, uh, are you giving something up for Lent? And he immediately said one of his video games. I can't tell you the name of it, but so for 40 days, apparently he's not going to play this particular video game. Now, here, here here's the point of that little illustration. Only God would know if a person that was giving up Facebook for 40 days, or Instagram for 40 days, or anything else for 40 days, is really also working on the more important subject of, for example, working on our honesty, or working on having a more pure thought life, or perhaps working a little harder on anger management and attitude or these such things that are internal. Only, only God would know. You know, we can give up something for 40 days and not really be working on the more important issues. And so we need to keep that in mind. If a changed life is not the goal for the 40 days of denial, then whatever was given up for those 40 days was nothing more than an exercise in patience or self-denial, which could be no more effective in making a legitimate disciple of Jesus than not eating chocolate for several days in a row. And that's not really what we're after, is it? So Lent, and I'm going to get into Philippians, but Lent is really a spiritual discipline. So if you're wondering, why why this talk about Lent? Why why these decorations here in the front of the pulpit and and some of the emphasis that we're seeing around the the church and these articles that are uh, being disseminated from our offices and and from folks and maybe some of the teaching that you're having in small group or in your Sunday school classes or whatever. Lent is literally a spiritual discipline. Listen, it should begin the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the pattern of self-examination towards spiritual maturity should be in place literally for the rest of our lives until we meet Jesus. Amen? That should be a spiritual exercise that we are all practicing every day of our lives until we die or until Jesus calls us home. So Lent is really, it's not just a 40-day thing leading up to Easter. It's really a spiritual discipline and learning to become a more effective disciple. Because we're all a work in progress. As I mentioned last week, 
in the sense of learning to become a disciple of Jesus. And I think that's why the prophet Isaiah said this. And listen, Isaiah 64, 8. Listen to what he says. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, this lump of clay. You are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hands, the shaping of the hands of the heavenly father to, to shape us in the way that brings him pleasure and joy and gladness and a sweet aroma in the heavenlies. So perhaps there is a particular area that you are working on in the Lord this year. Last week, uh, I indicated we'd take a look at something called anxiety and worry that can be a real problem for people. And that especially includes Christians. Anxiety and worry. And I've had several of you, uh, when I mentioned that last week, said, oh boy, I'm looking forward to that because that's something that I kind of uh, struggle with. Uh, Maybe anxiety is an area where God wants to do a work in us. And so let me just say this, and and I'm going to raise my hand on this, okay? But let's just be practical and transparent before the Lord this morning. How many of us occasionally struggle with anxiety in our lives. Look at the hands. Look at the hands. We're, listen, we're amongst friends. We're amongst friends. And so this is a good thing for us to talk about, anxiety and worry for the Christian. Now, first of all, let me say this. Let's understand that there is a healthy anxiety that is good for us. There is a healthy anxiety that causes us to pay attention to the circumstances around us, and it's useful in the sense that it it prompts us to be careful. It prompts us to come to the platform on a Sunday morning uh, reasonably prepared to lead the congregation in worship. It, it's it uh, a, a little anxiety this past week was good for your Sunday school teacher to have in order to come prepared to share God's truth with us. It's a good, healthy. Anxiety that causes us to to uh, to tackle the challenges that uh, just living day to day life brings, and so there is a healthy anxiety, but there is an unhealthy anxiety, and I, I'm not talking about this from the standpoint of psychiatrists and psychology and all of that this morning, although there is that side to things. But I'm speaking out of God's word this morning with regard to the spiritual impact of a negative or unhealthy anxiety that Jesus spoke to us about in, uh, in his teachings. And so that's what we want to talk about. Because um, when unhealthy anxiety that Jesus warns us about gets a hold of us, then Satan marches in and he cripples our joy... Have you ever felt that crippling of joy? So I just don't feel, I just don't feel any joy. I just, you know, let alone happy. I, I don't feel joyous inside. The joy of my salvation. I just don't, I don't sense it. I don't feel it. And the devil, uh, he comes along and, and he, and he cripples that joy. And if we're not careful, worry can become a stronghold that many people never really overcome over the course of their lives. And that's a sad thing. So Paul tells us, uh, through the, the letter to the Philippians, these verses that we've read about a half a dozen times already. So I'm going to read it again. And we want to make sure that we get it, okay? Reju- he said, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. He says, rejoice. That has to do with joy. 
He says, have joy in the Lord. Again, I will say, have joy in the Lord. I say again, rejoice twice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, we talked about that last week. We talked about that word for gentle, that there really isn't a singular word in the Greek to really bring that across. But the closest that we might come is the word graciousness. And we talked about uh, putting on a gracious face. Uh, when we are in the house of God, putting on gracious speech, uh, putting on gracious attitudes and that sort of thing. I had to, uh, I, I checked my mailbox, uh, when I got to the office this morning and, uh, one of our, one of our, uh, wonderful volunteers, a uh, wonderful greeter out there in the foyer who has greeted most of us, uh, many, many times over said, Hey, I found this article and I thought you might find it interesting. And I, I want to read it to you because it goes along with this whole gracious thing that we talked about last week. And it says, how, how do, basically, how do churches rate in terms of graciousness? So it says this, and I quote, I read recently of a man who, who in an attempt to find out what other churches were really like, visited 18 different churches on consecutive Sundays. He always sat near the front of each sanctuary, which some of you have never done since I've been here. Uh, that was a, sorry. Uh, okay. That might be some additional change you might want to consider bringing in. Okay. And as I think about it, uh, back to the deal. And after, after worship, he would walk slowly to the rear, then return to the front and back to the rear again using another aisle. He was neatly dressed and always smiled pleasantly at other worshipers. He would make it a point to initiate a conversation with at least one other person and would remain for coffee if served. He used the following scale to rate his reception. Ten points for a smile from a worshiper. Ten points for a greeting from someone sitting nearby. One hundred points for an exchange of names. Two hundred points for an invitation to return next week. One thousand points for an introduction to another worshiper. And two thousand points for each invitation to meet the pastor or one of the pastors. On this scale, 11 of the 18 churches earned fewer than 100 points. And five of these actually received less than 20 points. His conclusion, and I close with this, not the sermon. <laughs> Don't get your hopes up. You say, well, I could change, right? I was working on that. Okay. Listen to this. The doctrine may be biblical. The singing may be inspirational. The sermon may be dynamic and uplifting. But when visitors discover that no one is interested in meeting them, when they learn that nobody cares if they are there, they are unlikely to return. See you Sunday when you will determine our rating. Wow, unquote. 
So it gives a whole different uh, spin on graciousness, doesn't it? Being gracious with others, not being so in, uh, c- concerned about ourselves. We're concerned about ourselves when we really only talk to our best friends at church and all that sort of thing. We're, we're concerned primarily about ourselves when we're not paying attention to the people that sit around us that maybe we don't know very well and we, we just keep looking at them from a distance. We still don't know their name. We did this, that, and the other. So this idea of graciousness is that he says, let your gentle, your gracious spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. In other words, he's available to help us with those things. Okay. Now, verse six, and here we go. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for a few things. No, be anxious for no thing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, that's the reading, and we must have read it six or seven or eight times uh, since we've been in chapter four. Two things that I see standing out clearly in those last two verses. One, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And number two, there is a peace of God that will guard our hearts from unhealthy anxiety. There is a peace for Christians. There is a peace for the people of God, the family of God, that is available if we're paying attention and if we're developing that, and if we're reaching out to God and allowing for His help, that will guard our hearts from unhealthy anxiety and worry. And that's for the family of God For those of you who have not put your faith in Jesus Christ yet, and you're knocking on the door, you're checking things out, you're not sure if you want to be a Christian or not, for the family of God, this is a wonderful promise. Now, sadly, there are many Christians who are not enjoying that privilege. And so that's part of why we're talking about this, because we all have these issues. I, I, in, In some of my research for this message, I ran across a testimony of a megachurch pastor. If I called his name, uh, probably 80% of you would know it. He not only has thousands and thousands of people coming to the church that he pastors, but they have uh, 10, 12, maybe 15 different campuses under that ministry. It is a huge operation. I mean, it is going like gangbusters. And I heard that pastor say, I struggle with anxiety and worry. He said one day, he said one, one Sunday, he said the church was growing, uh, people were coming to Christ, uh, uh, it looked like we had church work uh, with a downhill pull, if you understand what I mean. It just seemed like everything was working. And he said all of a sudden, on this one Sunday, he said the, the offerings dropped into nowhere, like into a black hole. He said, I don't know what happened, but he said the offerings just went down. And he said, man, I started to think, oh, man. I said, I didn't talk to anybody about it, but I thought, wow, what in the world happened? And then he said, well, it'll probably bounce back because things are rolling pretty good. Now, this is a mega church thing. And he said the next Sunday, they were down in the pits again. And the Sunday after that, they were down in the pits again. And the Sunday after that, they were down in the pits again. And he thought to himself, what have I, did I do, did I say, what, like, what's going on? 
He said, I, he said, we have hundreds of staff who like to feed their kids. And, you know, if this keeps on, we're going to have to cut back. We can't survive at this level. And so I share that with you only to say this, that everybody struggles with anxiety from time to time. The question is, does it become unhealthy? Uh, Their particular story was that God was getting their attention, he believed, that they were sowing seed in some areas that they shouldn't have been. And when they figured that out, they stopped it and the offerings popped back up and stayed there, in fact, exceeded where they had been. But for a period of time, that happened. Sometimes that happens. And that's just about a church and offerings. We all, listen, I, 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 you know, this morning I woke up and I was tempted to be anxious. I thought, Lord, you know, rained half the night and I, you know, is anybody going to show up for church? And I, I think this is an important truth and word from you that people need to hear. And is, are the right people going to be there to hear these things? And, you know, and you can just, you know, if you're not careful, it can, it can just capture you. And, and you can feel like, anybody feel like you wanted to go back to bed when you, the alarm went off? I rarely feel that way on Sunday mornings, but this morning I did. I don't know why, but I felt like, man, do I have to go this morning? It was like I was sleepy. I mean, I hardly ever am sleepy on Sunday mornings. I, I'm, it's my habit to be up early, but sometimes that happens and you can be, you know, you can be so filled with anxiety and worry. That you just want to pull the covers over your head, curl up in a ball, uh, get your cell phone and call mom and say, Mom, you know, I've you know, I got trouble. i got trouble in River City. Uh, that was the line from Music Man last night. I thought, in America, there are some alarming statistics that will help us appreciate the wisdom that Paul is giving the church at Philippi about an area where the enemy works to diminish our relationship with God. And that's really what anxiety and worry leads us to, diminishing our relationship with God. For many pastors who uh, serve north, north of Indiana this morning, the following quote that I saw yesterday, happened to be on Facebook, was posted by a pastor that many of you would know. I'm not going to mention his name. But many of you, you would know who it is. Pastors of church in Wisconsin. I don't know if you've looked at the weather report for Wisconsin this morning or not. But here's what he posted. It's Saturday, which means one thing. Another snowstorm. <laughs> so their services are canceled. And, you know, we've been there and we've done that. And we're in Indiana. It's even worse in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan and some of these places. Thankfully, ours was liquid um, last night. But anxiety about the weather or anxiety about work or anxiety about sales or anxiety about the family, anxiety about the kids, anxiety about the marriage, anxiety about relationships, anxiety about the church, anxiety about work, anxiety about the country, anxiety about the Republicans and Democrats and the whatever else there is, anxiety about world economy, anxiety about China, anxiety about North Korea, anxiety about Venezuela, anxiety about the border, Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. So uh, anxiety and the disorders that can develop around anxiety have become the most common mental illness in the United States of America. Affecting 40 million adults or as much as 18% of the population. So where does unhealthy anxiety originate? Now, Provided, 
Now let's remember this. We're talking about unhealthy anxiety, unhealthy worrying that Jesus is talking about. We're not talking about people who have a chemical imbalance. We're not talking about people who have uh, experienced some kind of trauma in their life that has caused issues and difficulties uh, in how they think and feel and their emotions and, and, and all. We're not talking about someone who has some type of a brain disorder or whatever. We're not talking about those folks. Uh, those folks who experience those kinds of things, uh, we have folks who are trained at, to spend extra time and have developed expertise to help folks who are in that category. And they should be under some kind of counselor's or doctor's care in that case. We're talking about normal, regular people. I mean, that's us, right? Amen? Aren't we normal? Look at look at your neighbor and say, I'm normal. Are you normal? I mean, I'm nor- I think I'm normal. Somebody looked at and said, oh, no, I'm not so sure. But Let me give you a formula that will help explain what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about strongholds this morning. Strongholds. The reason unhealthy anxiety and worry is such a problem in our world today is probably not what you think it is. It isn't simply a function of human behavior that can be observed and documented as people become overwhelmed by anxiety and worry. Sometimes to the place that they can't get out of bed in the morning, as I said. They want to crawl up uh, into a ball and whatever. Uh, the anxiety Paul is talking about and speaking to the, the Philippians about, and to us this morning, is an anxiety that affects the deepest parts of our mind and our soul, our heart, our, you know, what, what makes us who we are. Worry comes from, think about this, this is just a little logical sequence. Worry comes from poor circumstances. Poor circumstances can come from poor decisions or simply living in a broken world. Undue anxiety comes from an overfocus on the negative potential from poor circumstances. Why do we often overfocus on the circumstances that are or could be difficult? Why, why do we tend to overfocus on those? You see, it's a spiritual issue, even for the Christian, because we're all tempted to do that from time to time. And here's why. Here's why that happens to Christians. First John chapter two, verse fifteen and following. Listen, listen to this. Here's here's. Here's what's behind undue worry and anxiety that Jesus was talking about. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. All right, now let me break that down into the three areas that he's talking about. The, 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 the origin of inappropriate anxiety and worry has to do with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Let me talk about that. When our focus gets fixed on fleshly lusts, 
when our focus gets fixed on fleshly lusts, like... So well, give me an example. What are you talking about? Like laziness. That's a lust of the flesh. You're thinking it's always about sex. Laziness is a lust of the flesh. That's, that's what caused me to want to pull the covers over when I didn't have, I got to bed late, uh, missed an hour of sleep, and was sleepy. And the lust of the flesh wanted me to not show up. Of course, I would not do that. You know that. But, but those thoughts go through your mind. The lust of the flesh. Like apathy. Like, like when, when we are given instruction, Sunday school class or a small group or maybe in a message or maybe just in your Bible reading or whatever, and God gives us a word and he says, I want you to move this direction instead of this direction, and we are apathetic about it. So, whatever, whatever is a lust of the flesh. Uh, sexual gratification. Well, this is, this is what I'm... This is what my expectation is about sex and my personal ex- exposure or experience with, with sexuality. And so there is a lust of the flesh that relates to sexuality. There is a lust of the flesh that relates to overeating. Overeating. The lust of the flesh. Uh, there is a lust of the flesh like any mind-altering addiction. A lust of the flesh. And when those things happen and others that you can think of and I didn't mention, our love of God is diminished. When our focus gets on those things, our love for God is diminished because our focus is more on those things and ourselves and our circumstances than the love God wants us to appreciate in Him. That's what's wrong with it. Here's another one. When our focus gets fixed on the lust of our eyes, the lust of our eyes, you say, what are you talking about? Like wanting what other people have. Desiring something that somebody else has. Like, how about this one? Comparing ourselves to others. You can do that in school, in your classroom. You can do that on your sports team. You can do that as an employee at the place where you work. You you can do that in your neighborhood. You can do that, God forbid, in the life of the church, wanting something that one of your fellow brothers or sisters has that you don't have and that sparkles to your eye. That's, That's the lust of the eye. Like never, how about this one? Never feeling satisfied with what we have. Always wanting something better, something more, something prettier, something uh, that is more expensive or whatever. Or it can be things maybe like, uh, got to have the next video game that's out. I got to have it. I, I got to have that. It's a lust of the, I, I, I got I to have that in my inventory. Or, or, or somebody else's spouse. I want that spouse instead of the one I have. Or I can't find one that's as good as the one I see there. And so I want her husband or I want his wife. Or it could be, you know, it's the next song that your favorite group puts out. It's the next one. And, 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 and it's a, it's, it's a lust of our eye to be able to, to say, I, I, I need that in my, 
in my inventory because it inspires me and it makes me feel good. And every time that, every time that quartet sings, man, I get, I get hair on the back of my neck stands up if we're not careful. And what happens is if we overfocus on those things, our love of God is diminished. Now, this doesn't mean we stopped loving God. It just means it's diminished because it's focused on what I want, what I like, what I think I need. And the trouble that comes sometimes from having that kind of focus in life. Okay, here's the third one. When our focus gets fixed on the pride of life, like craving power, like craving control in relationships. Have you ever had a friend that was always trying to control your business and always trying to tell you what to do? Always picking on everything they think is wrong in your world? Always trying to dictate something? I hate it when board members are like that. I just will tell you. That's, that's crazy. I hate it when church members are like that. I, I hate it when I get like that. Don't you hate it when pastors get that way? Don't you hate it when your boss uh, gives instruction at work that way? I mean, it's just no fun. Don't you hate it when the principal walks around your clear school in the hallways and just picks at everything and tries to control it? Spit your gummy out. Right now, you spit that gum out or I'm going to give you detention, right? Always tell us what. And this, this issue about control and, and, and it just gets on your nerves sometimes. You know, people that'll want to control the group that you're in. Got anybody in your Sunday school class trying to control the class? Knock it off if you're doing that. That's not good. It's not healthy. It's not, it's not a, it's not a good practice for a disciple. Dominating a friendship. Uh, trying to change a spouse. No elbows here. But listen, uh, all of us, when we got, those of us who are married, we got married and we thought it was going to be a certain way and it didn't exactly go exactly what we thought. And then we said, well, hey, I got to change that in her or in him. And we said about it and they don't like it. And you don't like it that they don't like it. And it just creates lots, lots of problems. That's the, that, that's trying to change a spouse or craving honor. Craving distinction. Well, how come they get elected on the board every time we have an election? Like, what's up with that? Why can't I ever get? Or how come nobody ever asked me to? Or we start getting into that mindset. When we start doing that, that's the, that's the pride of life. The bo- he says the boastful pride of life. He said our love of God gets diminished when we start moving that way. And listen, we can all do that from time to time. Translation. Here's the translation of those three. It's hard to think about God when I'm so busy thinking about me or the things that matter to me. Can I say that again? It's hard to think about God when I'm so busy thinking about me or the things that matter to me. An overemphasis upon anxiety in life is the result of self-love. As opposed to God love. And that is what is wrong with the anxiety and worry that Jesus was referring to. And in that sense, anxiety and worry, in my mind, is sin. That kind of anxiety, that kind of worry, that robs God of the focus and attention that he deserves from us, is not good. And when we get caught up in thinking and feeling that way about life's circumstances, we develop something called expectations. Can you say that with me? 
expectations. He didn't all say it loud. Expectations. You see, when our expectations about anything in life don't pan out the way we had hoped, we become frustrated and disappointed. We begin to either feel worse by the moment or we start trying to to make a fix for where our expectations aren't being fulfilled. Expectations, listen, expectations that have not been filtered by the Word of God. That's why you have to be reading the Word of God. I can't give you enough of the Word of God for you to have a vibrant, mature discipleship experience with God. You can't get enough of that coming on Sunday morning, uh, and, and some of you want the messages to even be shorter than they are. Are you listening? If you're not reading God's Word, you can't filter. You cannot filter your expectations properly. It's the Word of God that helps us filter those, and, and those are generally self-centered ideas of the way we want things to be in life. When the expectations are not met, we get anxious. When the expectations, after, after the honeymoon, when the expectations we had about what marriage would look like in 20 years, the expectations are not met, we, we get anxious. And we begin to worry about our marriage. And we begin to, begin to worry about what the, what the future is going to be. And we're, we begin to worry about what are, what, if you have children, what are the kids picking up from the fact that this, this marriage or this relationship at, at work or, or whatever it may be uh, is, is going to do damage somehow, some way to people that I love. So when expectations are, are not met, we get anxious about life. And then Satan jerks on the line and the fish is hooked to use the fishing. You know, cast it out, kind of reel it in, kind of slow. Have you ever watched the river monster guy? Anybody watch him? He's got a great hook. I mean, jerk, he he can jerk it. He wakes and as soon as he feels the nibble, he kind of waits and then boom, he jerks. And he anchors that hook in the fish's mouth so it can't get away. And then he reels it in. That's really what the devil does when our expectations disappoint us. That happened to Habakkuk, the prophet. And I'm trying to hurry here, but listen, God told him, he said, there's going to be some really bad stuff I'm going to let happen by some mean people. It's going to happen because I love my, I love the family that I've adopted and they're not behaving properly. And so I'm going, there's going to be some sadness come in. So hopefully they'll come back to me. Listen to what Habakkuk did. He said, I heard, I heard what God said and my inward parts trembled. That's what happens when we get unduly anxious and worry. It's like driving a little too fast on the snow and the ice. Anybody ever done a 360 on the snow and ice and you're still moving forward at a reasonable clip going around, spinning around? I know what you're thinking. I, I don't drive safely, but I, most of you are not being honest. You've done it. You know what I'm, yes, thank you. Thank you, Lori. And, and, and you, you do that, that first spin around and you're thinking, uh, I, I can't stop this. I'm gonna, I may, I may do it, I may do three circles before this is over with. But I can't remember for the life of me if there were stop signs, if there were fire hydrants, if there were parked cars, I, like, I don't know where this is going to end up. And like, you've got this sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, I think I just tore my car up and may have caused damage. And am I hurt somebody 
in the process. It's that feeling of trembling inside for just, at the sound of, at the sound of my lips quivered, Habakkuk said. Decay entered my bones, and in my place, my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the days of, day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree, but he came out of it, he said, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds deer's feet, and makes me walk on my high places. That, that's what Habakkuk said. He felt that anxiety and that worry. You remember the prophet Elijah? When, 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 uh, Jezebel, Jezebel, Queen Jezebel sent word and he said, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you before the sun sets. Everything that's happened bad to these people is going to happen to you and worse. And in 1 Kings 19, then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, so may the gods do to me even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he, Elijah, this is God's man. Can this happen to Christians? Yes. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself, I am so anxious and worried about what this woman is going to do to me when she finds me. I'm asking you, God, just let me die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. That's what happens when we overfocus on, his expectation was, I'm going to serve the Lord. The Lord is my protector and my shield, and he's not going to let anything happen to me. Until it was about three o'clock in the morning, and he's by himself, and it's dark, and there's nobody around. And all of a sudden, the devil starts whispering in his ear, your expectations messed up, boy. It's not going to be anything like that. In fact, she's coming after you, and you better skedaddle, you better run. In fact, you'd be better off taking your own life. You ask the Lord to snatch your life away, you'd almost be better to take your own life. That's what, that's what undue anxiety and worry that Jesus said, don't, don't go there. When we're tempted to worry and live in the depths of anxiety that leads to depression, remember to take those thoughts captive because they diminish our love for God. Now I have one more really important truth for us that I hope won't strain your charity at six minutes till twelve. Will you hold on just a second? This will help you with anxiety. When we are tempted to worry and live in the depths of anxiety, he says, talk with God in prayer. This is how you deal with, with anxiety. The first thing you do is have a talk with God about it. The very first thing when you're feeling that anxiety to worry and, and, and fret. Talk to Jesus. And he says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So with a humble heart, you have to be humble to be able to say, God, this ain't working out right. And I've been trying really hard to control my circumstances and it ain't happening. So we have to humble down. No more boastful pride of life. No, no, no more of that apathy. You get down on your face like Habakkuk and like, like Elijah and you say, God, if you don't help me, I'm, I'm not going to make it. 
I've got to have your help with this. And so with a humble heart, we confess to God, we desperately need His help. Then we ask Him for the help to develop a course of action that we can take to make things better with His help. So the first thing when you're feeling that anxiousness, you go to God and you say, God, this isn't working out. My expectations aren't being met. Something's not working. I can't do this. I can't do this. You humble down. We don't like to be humble. But you humble down and you say, God, have mercy. Help me. I need your help with this. Then we ask God. He said, make your supplications. Say, God, is there anything in this hopeless situation that I've just said I need your help? Is there anything you want me to do while I'm waiting for your help? Is there anything I can do, not in my own strength, but with you? Reveal it to me. Show me if there's something I'm supposed to do. And then, thirdly, do what you can do. You do what you can do and then trust God to do what only God can do. So here we go. Number one, take every thought captive. You have to humble down and ask for help. Number two, do what you see you could do with God's help. What could you do? And then thirdly, give what I cannot do to God. And Proverbs says, trust, not in, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Jesus said, Jesus said leave, to, leave tomorrow to Him and just trust God. When the time comes, he will provide what only he can provide. You say, but what do you mean when the time comes? I need it now. That's not your call. It's not my call. It's his call to provide what what we can't do that only he can provide. And it's in his time. And it's our job to trust and hold steady in that. You know why? Because God is not bound by time. Jesus is not bound by yesterday. Jesus is not bound by the stuff you and I are going to walk out in that parking lot and face this this next week. He is not bound by that. And guess what else? You and I think about tomorrow and the trouble it might hold. But you and I do not live in tomorrow. What if I told you Jesus is in tomorrow? He is not bound by yesterday, today, or tomorrow, or forever. Jesus knows tomorrow. I don't. You don't. So he said, just leave that to me and the Father. Just leave that to me. I already know. I'm living there too. I know what you need. I know when you need it. And I I know how to guide you. I know how to make your path straight. So until we're humbled, we cannot cast anything to God because we're holding on to what we think we can do that we can alleviate somehow our anxiety. Remember this definition of anxiety in this context. This definition, as I close, trying to do something myself that only God can do. Anxiety is trying to do myself based on my expectations in what only God can do. And that is why I entitled the message last week and this week, up to me or up to God? Are you going to take your anxiety and leave it up to you? Or I'm going to leave it up to me? Or are we going to leave it up to God? When facing anxiety, take every thought captive. How do you do that? 
you get on your knees and you say, God, have mercy. I can't do this. I, I need your help. I am not qualified. I do not have the resources. I do not have the mental power. I do not have the emotional energy. I do not have any support around me. I, I don't have any talent within me. Uh, there is nothing I can do to fix this thing that's producing anxiety. So God have mercy. And then do what you see you can do that God helps you to see. That is filtered by your understanding of the word of God. And then give what you cannot do to God. Anxiety comes from our unmet expectations and trying to control life as if it were up to us. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yeah. It's like, it's up to us. It's up to us where this church is going to be in five years, 15 years, 25 years if Jesus tarries. It's all up to us. It's all who we elect to the board. It's all who the pastor is in those days. It's all, it's all up to us. It's up to us. No, it isn't. Can I get an amen on that? It's not up to us. It is up to the Father's wishes and his will. We need to get our expectations in alignment with his will. So cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter says that. Cast all your anxiety on Jesus because he cares for you. In the Phillips translation, you know how that reads? It says, cast all your anxiety on him. And here it is. You are his personal concern. When you walk out these these doors, you just remember this. And don't pay any attention to the devil. You are Jesus' primary concern. He knows where you live. He knows who you are. And he cares about you. And he will help you with your anxiousness. So he says in John 14, Peace I live, leave with you. It's my peace. I give to you. Not, not as the world gives, because the world doesn't give you peace. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, I've got a list of 12 things or 13 things, whatever, that I wanted to share. But I'm going to close because I've already kept you over. But I hope that if you're dealing with anxiety, and maybe I can share a couple of these things next time. But if you're dealing with anxiousness and anxiety, and uh, as you're listening to God and saying, God, during this time of Lent, this is a problem that I have occasionally. And my family knows it. The people around me know I struggle with it. And I just, I just want your help. So would you close your eyes with me for just a moment? And I, I wonder just before God, and please just have the sense that no one's looking around. How many would just honestly, genuinely, just with an upraised hand and put it right back down to say, this was for me this morning. This is, this is for me this morning. Thank you, God. Just slip your hand up to God. I needed this reminder today. So Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word of truth and I just pray that you will help us with undue anxiety and worry that happens in our lives. Uh, Sometimes it happens right here in the church house. And sometimes it's happening in our homes. Sometimes it's happening at work. Sometimes it's happening uh, in our uh, collective uh, friendships and little groups that we, we gravitate with. And sometimes it just happens privately, internally. And no one even knows how anxious we are about some things. I pray that you will help us to use these tools that you've given us. to help relieve undue anxiety and worry that robs you of the focus that you want us to have with you. Help us with anxiety, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, Father, there could be some people here that have never taken Jesus into their heart. And Lord, would they just understand that this very day, if they would put their faith in you, the, the Jesus of the Bible, and ask Jesus Christ to come into their lives, not just because we're anxious, 
but because we need a Savior. Maybe we're anxious because we don't want to meet God in our sin, and that'd be a fair anxiety. May that kind of an anxiety press us on to receiving Christ as our Savior. Help them to just say a simple prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I ask you to be the Savior of my life. I invite you in this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand. We're getting ready to march right on out of here. Uh, Remember graciousness? Remember that gentleness, that gracious demeanor, that gracious handshake, that gracious smile, that gracious introduction to somebody else in the body of Christ, maybe somebody that you don't know or whatever. Let's do it well on our way out. God help us. May your face shine upon us and give us favor and blessing and protection this week as we go into this community to serve. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Live less anxiously this week.